And as we commemorate last night, the Lord's Supper was inaugurated. Last night the cross was empty. It was draped in purple, the royal color, because it was awaiting royalty. But tonight the cross is draped in black. Because on this day, Jesus was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. Listen to Peter's words spoken on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan for knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put into death. Tonight the cross also is empty because a few hours ago Jesus' body was taken from the cross hurriedly, temporarily prepared for burial. On that Friday night of the crucifixion, it seems that Peter and John, confused, went into Jerusalem and lodged together in an upper room somewhere. We don't know the location, probably in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Thomas, confused, just went off alone somewhere. We don't know where. But the other disciples, the other eight disciples and the women went to Bethany <coughs> to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus <coughs> where they spent that Friday night and the Saturday which is the Sabbath. <coughs> we can just imagine what that room must have been like as they were gathered together pondering what they had just seen, confused, rehearsing the words that Jesus had uttered and heartbroken. They just couldn't erase the horrible scene and the sounds from their minds. Tonight, as we are before the cross, let's join that group in Bethany and in that candlelit room with them, let's relive that excruciating scene. With them, let's rehearse the words of Jesus spoken on the cross. Now, as we think about the reflections that must have been theirs that night, we also must realize that it was great difficulty that Jesus spoke from the cross for many reasons. One, of course, was all that he endured prior to the crucifixion. It's interesting to notice that in just uh, Matthew and, and uh, Mark and John, there's just this passing phrase, and having Jesus scourged. He delivered him to be crucified. Or John says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. That one line, but my, what that one line says. Considered what Jesus 
endured before he was crucified. These details, frankly, are difficult to look at. But the scourging was done with a whip that had many, many braided strands. On the end of each strand there was a metal ball, and as the whip was applied to the body, the balls would bruise the flesh and after a while break the flesh, but also woven into the braided strands were sharp stones and bones that cut into the flesh and cut into the flesh. The Roman flogging was supposed to be limited to 39 lashes, but frequently it was more. The lashing normally happened from the shoulders to the upper thighs. Flesh was shredded often. The bones themselves were exposed. In the garden, you remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. John tells us, knowing all things, Jesus went forth. He knew what was ahead, every detail, and yet he went forth. Many died while being flogged. They experienced hypovolemic shock because of losing so much blood. Heartbeat would race, trying to pump blood that wasn't there. The kidneys shut down as they tried to control and retain fluid in the body. Blood pressure lowered. Tremendous thirst. And in the garden, Jesus knew that all of that was going to happen to him. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth. His life was already hanging by a thread. When they then put the cross beam of the cross upon him, the patibulum, and began to force him to carry it toward Golgotha. But he was already so weak, all that had gone before, even prior to the flogging, so weak that they grabbed a man out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and compelled him to bear it. And so they proceeded to Calvary, and Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. When they arrived at Calvary, he was spread out, and six-inch spikes were placed probably into the wrist just below the hand, the side of the median nerve. Then he was lifted, and that Crossbeam was put in the upright post. The shoulders were pulled out of joint. Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, prophetically said, My bones are out of joint, describing the crucifixion prophetically. 
His knees were slightly bent and a spike put through the feet. Sometimes a spike was driven through the back so the person hanging could impale himself upon that and support himself a bit. You see, the Romans designed crucifixion as a means of making a person die slowly. No Roman would be crucified, he would be beheaded. But non-Romans were crucified. And in the garden, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth, for God so loved the world. Suspended in that fashion, a person could inhale, but not exhale. And so the only way that Jesus could speak was to push himself up and exhale to speak, and then inhale and drop back down. Tremendous effort, tremendous effort to breathe and to speak. And slowly when the one crucified legs were so exhausted that he no longer could force himself upright to exhale, the unexpelled carbon dioxide in the lungs filled, it became carbonic acid. The heart beat irregularly. Life was prolonged, but how horrible. And Jesus in the garden, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. Sooner or later, pericardial effusion happened. That was fluid formed around the heart, pleural effusion, fluid in the tissues around the lungs. And so later, when the soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side, it pierced the lung, the heart, blood and water came forth. But Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth because God so loved the world. All of these things being true, thinking of what tremendous effort it took for our Lord Jesus to speak. And every word that he spoke from the cross for us must be sacred. The first words were these. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Think of those of whom he spoke. The Sadducees were there. Jesus had touched their money. Pharisees were there. Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy. The Herodians were there, and Jesus and his second cousin John had spoken of the sin and wickedness in Herod's palace. The Zealots were there. They had done everything they could to get Jesus to lead their crusade to drive out the Romans, but Jesus refused to be a political pawn. And so the political and personal agendas of these four groups 
had been the driving force behind the movement to kill Jesus. <coughs> there was a fifth group present, the Roman soldiers. <coughs> and they really didn't know what they were doing. Truth told, the Romans wouldn't even have been involved if the Jews had not pressed this matter upon him. And yet, the cruel Roman soldiers delighted in inflicting pain. And so Jesus, for a while, was their cruel toy. <coughs> the Romans were Gentiles. So both Jew and Gentile crucified Jesus. And Jesus looked down at the cross and saw his enemies who were mocking him and the Romans who were mocking him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The tense of the Greek verb is such that it indicates that Jesus said this over and over and over again. I wonder when they were putting the nails in his hands, I wonder every time a hammer came down. Did he say, Father, forgive them? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Isaiah foretold that Jesus would intercede for his tormentors. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great... He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many that interceded for the transgressors. Doesn't it seem amazing that these people could mock Jesus? They'd seen all the evidence of his character. They had seen his holy power. They had seen him work miracles. They'd seen lives changed. And yet Jesus said, this is what was going to happen when he gave the parable of the sower. He said, a certain parable went forth, a sower went forth to sow seed. And he sowed the seed and it fell on different ground. And one of the grounds it fell on was hard ground. And the seed couldn't penetrate the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 wrote, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's interesting that Jesus often called the Pharisees blind but of course he knew who his real enemy was it was the 
enemy of all of us, Satan. It wasn't really the Jews. What was Jesus asking God to do when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? He couldn't have been asking forgiveness for unrepentant men. There's no example in Scripture of unrepentant or people with no changed heart being forgiven. Some sort of a heart change is required. <coughs> Could it be that Jesus was saying today, Father, do not pour out the wrath of heaven on these men. Because 50 days from now the Holy Spirit will come and the gospel will be preached. And the opportunity to go to heaven will be given to all who will accept this atonement. I wonder. But for you and for me, the most important truth to come out of all of this is how we are to respond to those who are cruel toward us. About 50 years later, Peter presented the example of Christ as a model for the Christian attitude toward persecutors. Listen to what Peter wrote. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? No credit there. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. O oh, Father, Forgive them. And then we see Jesus once again seeking to rise. And the next words he uttered are these. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that initially not only was the crowd mocking Jesus, but the thieves being crucified on each side of him also mocked him. You see, they resented dying now in public spectacle. They probably would have just been executed privately, but now because the Jewish authorities wanted Jesus to be shamed, he was crucified between two thieves. And they were the ones chosen for public spectacle. Also, because the next day was a Sabbath, they probably wouldn't have been crucified for several more days, so their life was shortened. The two thieves were bitter against Christ. And so they joined with the mockers and mocked him as well. But as time passed, one criminal began to find himself strangely moved by this man who was next to him. We have to wonder, had he ever heard Jesus teach? 
Had he ever seen him before this day? We don't know. But his tone began to change. The other answered, and rebuking the other thief, he said to him, Do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sense of condemnation, we indeed justly, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This this is the only recorded protest in this scene. A dying thief. And then, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Notice six things about this thief. He was repentant. He considered Jesus to be the Messiah, called him Lord. He made a public confession of faith. He appealed to Christ for salvation to the degree that he understood Christ promised to see him and Christ promised to take him with him that day. Think about that. Jesus died first. And when the soldiers came back and because the Jews wanted all the bodies off the cross for the Sabbath... They broke the legs of the other thieves so they couldn't push themselves up and breathe and they died. When this thief died, Jesus was waiting for him. Think of that. Jesus was waiting for him. The important truth out of this is that Jesus... is ready to receive into his very presence all of those who are his. Romans 8:38. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The next thing Jesus said is somewhat striking. Pushing himself up again so he could speak. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. <clears throat> it's interesting that when God was ready to send his son into the world to be born of a virgin to redeem all of us, he didn't just choose Mary, but he chose a family. Family of which Mary was a chosen member. John the Baptist, for example, was Jesus' second cousin. Two of the disciples, James and John, were Jesus' first cousin. Their mother, Salome, was Mary's sister. It's interesting, as you read through the New Testament, the Greek, you never find Jesus calling Mary mother. He always uses their respectful word, gune, woman, which would be the equivalent of our using the term ma'am as we speak to ladies. 
He always spoke with great respect toward her. But in the agony of death, she was a widow. She had followed her son about now for about three years as he went itinerating around the country. And she was going to be left alone. But in the agony of death, Jesus provided for the care of his mother. John, his cousin, son, behold thy mother. Woman, behold thy son. Jesus lived his life entirely for others. I can only think of two times when Jesus focused on himself. And one was in the Garden of Gethsemane, which he said, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the other one on the cross where he cried out, I thirst. Every other instance, when you think of our Lord, it was always others. And here, his mother setting the example for us. Paul wrote to Timothy, If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family, to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Our Lord Jesus, in the midst of his agonizing death, modeled for us what each of us as his followers must model in this world. And then again, forcing himself upward. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Again, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, in which David, in a cry of anguish, posed that question. And Jesus, because the Psalms are beautiful poetry through which we can express ourselves, expressed himself through that psalm. Now, according to Matthew and Mark, darkness by this time had come upon the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour. John tells us that the trial before Pilate ended about six o'clock in the morning. The crucifixion began around nine and then around noon. Supernatural darkness came over the earth. Jesus had been on the cross three hours before the darkness came. It was as if God were creating a veil to somehow protect the dying moments of the Messiah. It was symbolic, of course, of the dark deed. You know, God did a similar thing at Jesus' baptism. You remember as he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove to testify to him. A similar thing in the Mount of Transfiguration as God testified to him here God was doing something else, testifying, cloaking the death of his son. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? The physical torture was real, but the spiritual torture was even more intense. Paul wrote, He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now think about this. Think of taking on the thousands of sins of millions of people. That was the burden which Jesus bore, but he also had to become the very thing that he despised and hated and the very thing that could not come into the presence of God. The lesson for us is that our redemption was purchased through a painful sacrifice physically, spiritually, that none of us is able to fully grasp. But Jesus knew all things that were before him, and he went forth. Again, pushing himself up, I thirst. A common request of those who are dying especially one who had been through what Jesus had been through as humanity was displaying itself. Now remember before the crucifixion, there were women, uh, actually it was a group of women from the area, they were sort of a charitable organization. And when someone was going to be crucified, they brought them wine mixed with myrrh to give them as sort of anesthetic so the pain wouldn't be so bad. Jesus refused that. But now he cried out, I thirst. And a man ran and put a sponge with some sour vinegar juice on it to touch his lips. Some people said, don't interfere. Let's see if Elijah will come and help him. The man, in essence, was saying, well, I'm trying to keep him alive just to see if he will. <laughs> Luke 23 tells us that this cry of Jesus, I thirst, was an occasion for the Roman soldiers to mock him. You're thirsty? <laughs> but that points out to us, Jesus suffered as a man. And then the sixth statement, it is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Mark merely says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, gave up the ghost. John and Luke tell us that that loud cry was, it is finished. Not the words of perhaps a normal dying man who would say, I'm finished. But Jesus said, it is finished. There was no reason to linger any longer, he gave up the ghost. He used no miraculous power to deliver himself, but he accepted it. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was in control. You remember when they came to arrest him? Peter whipped out a sword, cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, and Jesus said, put up your sword. You know, if I wanted to, I could call ten legions of angels, or rather six legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. When he was before Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know I have authority to kill you? Jesus said, you don't have any authority except what's given you from heaven. He was in control. And when there was no reason to linger any longer, he said, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. Tonight, the cross is empty. It is empty because the work of our salvation is complete. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Slain from the foundation of the world. For sinners crucified, O holy sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after then comes judgment. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Oh, God, we know there is no way that we can comprehend the depth, the breadth, the height of your love. There is no way we can comprehend the full experience of Jesus upon the cross, especially what it truly meant to become sin in our stead. But, Lord, to the degree that we can, we declare our faith in the cross tonight. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your goodness, and the certain hope that we have because of the price paid for us. And in three days, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus came forth from the grave. Praise be your name. Tonight, some probably will want to remain in the auditorium and meditate for a season on the cross. So as you leave, we ask you to do so quietly to allow them to have that time of meditation. We're dismissed.